Welcome back to Catholic Doctrine Bible Study. I'm your host, Jim Hawk, and this is session 172. So in this session, we're going to spend the entire time on Exodus chapter 32. So unless you're driving, turn to Exodus chapter 32. And the reason we're going to spend the whole time on this one chapter is it tells us so much about human nature and our rebelliousness against God. So this is not going to be just a story of history. It's really kind of the story of all of us. So let's set the stage. What has happened so far? Uh, with what is so far in the Israelites' walk with God since they have left the Egyptians. So we we saw recently in chapter 24, their, their, their grumbling had stopped for the time being. And in verse 3 of chapter 24, uh, they gave a sort of responsorial psalm answer to Moses' sharing of the word. They said, we will do everything that the Lord has told us. So they start out with good intentions, just as we may have with our, let's say, New Year's resolutions. We all start out the year fresh with enthusiasm. We're going to exercise, or we're going to read three great books or that we got for Christmas, or we're going to spend an hour a day in prayer. Then something happens or nothing happens. And by the beginning of February, the treadmill is gathering dust. The books remain on the shelf. Uh, the, the rosary is back in the drawer. So just as with us, the Israelites' enthusiasm was high at the beginning of chapter 32. But how was their commitment? Remember this, enthusiasm can come and go. It's as fickle as the weather, but commitment keeps you going towards a goal even when enthusiasm drops. So we see this in our own lives. Uh, we see it elsewhere in scripture, and we see it here today in chapter 32. So looking back, what has happened to them so far? God had delivered his people from slavery. He'd saved them through the Red Sea. He defeated their enemies, the Amalekites. He uh, provided food and water for them miraculously in the desert. He had guided them through their journey. You know, he appeared to them as a, a pillar of fire uh, at night and uh, as a cloud during the day. And he told them he would dwell with them in this tabernacle that they were supposed to build. You know, he had given the instructions for how to build it in our last session. So the people's enthusiasm was high. Yeah, Lord, we'll do everything you tell us. We'll follow those Ten Commandments that, uh, that you just gave us verbally. Um, how long did that last? Well, less than 40 days. 
Remember a, a few sessions ago in chapter 24, Moses left Aaron in charge while he went up on the mountain. He didn't tell Aaron how long he'd be gone. Well, in verse 18 of chapter 24, it says that he was gone 40 days and nights. And we've talked at a number of times about the symbolism of the number 40. It's a time of preparation, right? Jesus in the desert for 40 days. Uh, it took the Israelites 40 years to get to the promised land, etc. Okay, we've already covered that. So in chapter 32, at the beginning of it, the Israelites assumed that Moses was not coming back. Maybe he was killed. What's it say? Verse 21. When the people became aware of Moses' delay in coming down, you know, it's 40 days from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, who is left in charge, you know, Moses' brother, and said to him, come, make us a God who will be our leader. As, as for the man Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Okay, so how quickly they uh, they changed their way. So uh, we can we can understand how the apparent loss of their earthly leader could up, could put a damper on their what enthusiasm. But this event also shows us their total lack of commitment. The first thing that happens that they that they don't perceive as positive, they pack it in in less than 40 days. We see in chapter 32, we already looked at uh, verse 1 there, uh, you know, Aaron is under tremendous peer pressure. You know, he's got all these thousands of people, and they say, make us a god. Now, these people are used to worshiping idols. For 400 years, they lived among the Egyptians and, uh, you know, were forced to worship their gods, right? So it was easy for them to backslide. So they said, make us a god. So what didn't Aaron do here? Well, for one thing, he didn't pray. Uh, and we may do the same thing when we are uh, when we are put under pressure. We should always pray when we're put under pressure. Instead of praying, he rationalized, and we do this too. As we'll see in verses five and six, he doesn't totally abandon the idea of God. He tries to syncretize his understanding of God with what the people wanted in a God. He, he probably thought, Aaron probably thought, worshiping some God is better than no worship at all. And if I'm deposed, their worship will be totally pagan with not even a mention of the one true God. So he's thinking, well, you know, I'll, I'll make the best of the situation. I'll compromise. I'll syncretize. So he collected gold from the people, melted it down. And in verse 3, tells us that he fashioned this gold into a calf, right? So um, anyway, and it says that he fashioned it into, uh, with a graving tool, made a molten calf. So he made it, right? So Aaron tries to shape God into something that the people liked. 
We do the same thing, don't we? We rationalize that God understands our sins. Uh, God isn't really bothered by them. Kind of, that God kind of winks at our sins or he ignores our sins. I've heard it put this way. God made man in his own image, and we've been trying to return the favor ever since. Okay, and we do that, right? Not surprisingly, the God that we try to fashion ends up being quite a bit like, well, we are. With the same prejudices, the same temperaments, and the same political viewpoints that we personally have, right? So these people aren't doing anything different than we do now, right? They're trying to fashion God into an image that they feel good about as opposed to who God really is. So right out of the gate, now remember all this enthusiasm that they had before uh, verse 32. I mean, they had their grumblings and all that, but they would uh, get over them as God would provide for them. But right out of the gate here, in verse 32, they've trashed the first commandment to not worship graven images. Uh, by the way, this calf was reminiscent of the Egyptian bull god named Apis, A-P-I-S, a god known for strength and what else? Fertility. So verse 6 tells us that it was party time. The NAB says that they rose up to revel. The Revised Standard Version, again, I say again, a better translation, a more literal translation. The Revised Standard Version says they rose up to play. But a number of commentaries suggest that these are euphemisms for an orgy. So this calf is made out of gold, which symbolizes wealth or money. So the calf also symbolizes strength, you know, the apis god for strength or power. And fertility or sex is another thing that that calf symbolizes. So let's think about this. So we got this calf and he symbolizes money, power, and sex might want to write that in your margins. Money, power, and sex, next to the bit about the golden cap being formed. Money, power, and sex got in the way of their relationship with God. Good thing we don't have those issues today, right? Uh, so obviously we do. I'm being sarcastic. Money, power, and sex get in the way of our relationship with God. So uh, what happens, then we have verses uh, 7 through 11 of chapter 32. And um, God says, go down at once to your people. Okay, so the, your people, uh, they've turned aside from me. Verse 8, they've turned aside from me. And he tells them, uh, God tells Moses what they, what they have done. Verse 9 says, I see how sticked, stiff-necked this people is. So you might want to underline stiff-necked. So what is a stiff-necked people? Well, think of a horse, right? You're trying to ride a horse. If the horse is stiff-necked, he 
uh, you you have a hard time getting him to go in in the direction you want. You know, I mean, you you pull on the reins, but he he pulls back. So um, you you uh, you know you're obstinate, right? So that's a pretty good description of those people, the Israelites at that time, and us. So in verse uh, uh, ten, he says. God says, "Let me alone, then, that my wrath may blaze upon, uh, blaze up against them to consume them. Then I will make you a great nation." So, could could God do that? Well, first of all, God is holy; He keeps His promises. He had promised Abraham back in Genesis fifteen and twenty-two, and Jacob in Genesis chapter thirty-five that he would make their descendants a great nation. Now, could he have wiped these people out and continued on with Moses? Well, Moses himself was from that same lineage. Uh, Moses was a Levite, um, so he was a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he could, God could have done that and kept his promise to Abraham. So what a temptation for Moses. He could get rid of these, depending on whether we want to take all, all of this literally or not. He could have get rid of these two million grumblers, whiners, and quasi-pagans and have a, hey, it's just me and God worship experience, and Moses' family would get all the future blessings. But look at how far Moses has come. You know, back in Exodus 3, Moses, Moses didn't even want the job as leader. Now, in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 32, he's responding to God by interceding for the people. He says, why do you want to do this to your people? So it's it's interesting. God, when he first sees that what the people are doing down at the bottom of the mountain, he calls to Moses. He says, what are your people? Your people are doing this. And Moses says, why do you want to do this to your people? So Moses is interceding. He's going a long way uh, in his walk with God. Do you want to make the Egyptians say you're not so loving a God after all? And he says, remember your promise to Abraham. So Moses actually is quoting scripture to God in, in verse 13. Okay. Uh, so I guess Moses hadn't considered that God could have considered, continued his promise through Moses alone and Moses' uh, family. Um, verse 14 says, the Lord relented. Now, you know, he's not going to destroy the people. So, question, does God change his mind? It sure looks like he did here. And later on in chapter 3, it appears God changes his mind. Okay, so let's, let's unpack that. Well, we know God has to keep his promises because he's holy. And, and God is immutable. He doesn't change his mind. Okay, but God has to keep his promises. Now, he could have kept his promise to Abraham through all, um, through all these people or, or just Moses. But does God change his mind? No. He knows what's going to happen for all eternity. But we can't ignore this verse 14, which says he, he changed his mind. You know, he relented. 
So let's unpack this. One way to look at it is God said he was going to wipe out the people in maybe in order to get a response out of Moses. God already knew what Moses' response would be, that Moses would intercede for the people. But maybe Moses didn't know what Moses' response would be. You know, Moses is growing in his faith. So maybe God said this, you know, hey, I'm going to wipe out the people, to, to as part of Moses' maturation process, as part of Moses being mature, becoming more mature. Maybe God was saying to Moses, it's okay to question me, even to debate me a bit, as long as you do it with respect. So um, no analogy is perfect, but try this one on in the question of does God change his mind? Let's say you're a novice chess player. You're playing the world's master champion. Now you've you just begun playing, so you don't really know chess very well. Now you are free to make any move you want, all right, but the master that you're playing will respond accordingly. You're free, but the master's in control. He'll adjust his moves to whatever you do, but the outcome is certain. The master will get what outcome he wants. So maybe it's that God adjusts his answers based on our responses, but he doesn't change his mind because he knows what you're, you're going to do, you know. Uh, okay, so back to the text. Uh, Moses heads back to the camp, and we see in verse 19, uh, what does he do? He breaks the tablets. And what does this symbolize? You might want to write this in your margins next to verse 19. Breaking of the tablets symbolizes the people's what? Breaking of the covenant. Moses then grounds the calf into powder, puts it into water, and makes the people drink it. Now that might have caused some digestive problems. Um, one cure for smoking that was popular a few years ago was to force the smoker, if, if he, you know, desired to quit, to inhale four or five cigarettes at a time nonstop until the smoker got sick. The thought of a cigarette after that was enough to make the person sick. So Moses is saying, you like your golden calf so much? Well, drink it. See how much you like it. Then in verse 21 through 23, we see that Aaron has mastered the blame game. You know, he, 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 Aaron says, hey, it's these people's fault. Uh, verse 23, he sub subtly kind of suggests that it's Moses' fault. Like, hey, you were gone so long, we didn't know you are gone. Well, and now here's probably the dumbest lie in the whole Bible. In verse 24, Aaron says, hey, I threw the jewelry into the fire and out came a calf. I mean, yeah, but it said before that in verse, uh, what, four, that he had made it with a, with a graving tool. So, you know, he justifies what he did and then he lies about it and, uh, and all that. Well, what we can't lie about is that we're about out of time. So let's uh, pick up next time. Uh, after, um, you know, and, and for further develop chapter 32. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Lord, uh, we all seem to have golden calves in our own lives in the sense that um, we're attracted to money, we're attracted to power, we're attracted to sex, which this golden calf represented. And we pray that you will help us focus on you and not the and not what seems to be you. We pray that we don't make you into a God of our own liking. You are God, we are not. We, we must learn to trust in you and not put our faith in, in some second rate, uh, um, you know, uh, some, some second rate, um, you know, uh, fake God. So give us the strength to do that and to recognize ourselves in this story of Exodus uh, chapter 32. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.